We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's take a look here at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, down in verse 14, just to kind of give you a setting of this text. It says in verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all three of these synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics, same view, synoptic, and that you look at Jesus as um, the king, the servant, and the perfect man. They're all looking like this. John, the gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You're looking at a top-down different deal. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics. And none of them record what is called the Judean ministry. John chapter 1 until John chapter 4 is called the Judean ministry. When Christ began his ministry, he went first to Jerusalem and called the religious, the leaders, to repent. They did not. John the Baptist was put in jail, and he goes now into Galilee, up north, West Virginia, okay, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mike Shear. And so uh, Christ goes Judean ministry, and only John records that. And then he goes the Galilean ministry, and that is what Mark begins with. Uh, It's been said that Judea, Jerusalem, gave Christ a cross, that Galilee gave him a home. And that's where all of his disciples come from Galilee. They are simple men, except for one, a man from Kerioth named Judas Iscariot. And he is from the south. He's got a degree. Okay. And so in verse 14, we begin with, because Mark is more concerned with the ministry of Christ after his rejection by Jerusalem and his moving now into the north of Galilee and collecting around himself 12 men who are going to carry his program on in light of his rejection. So Mark goes right to the Galilean ministry. And he says that uh, in verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That you might walk, Paul said, I pray for you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He redeemed us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of God's dear son. That you might be considered worthy of the kingdom by which and for which you are suffering. And Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, Acts 28, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God. You hear that from one end of the gospels to the other, the kingdom of God. If I were to ask you to take a four by six and write down what you know about the kingdom of God, how it appears in the Bible, could you write it? Because it's an understanding of the meta-narrative of what God is doing. As a matter of fact, the term kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is used 96 times in the New Testament. It's a huge idea. So what is it? Well, let me just begin with a, a point here for you. That God has always been the eternal king. 
Ride on, O King Eternal. Thy day of, of victory has come, Psalms. He's the eternal king. But God has not always had an eternal kingdom. Because if you're going to have an eternal kingdom, you're going to have to have eternal subjects. And you're going to have to have an eternal domain. And only God is eternal. So there can't be eternal subjects or an eternal domain, even though he is the eternal king. And so to have a kingdom of God, you're going to have to create two things. You're going to have to create subjects and you're going to have to create their domain. And that is where the kingdom of God begins. Are you with me so far? We'll continue this next week. Father, thank you for this. I'm just kidding. We'll move slow. All right. So to understand the kingdom of God, it's going to begin before Genesis 1. And it's going to continue all the way to Revelation 22, the kingdom of God. To understand the kingdom of God, you've got to go to the Bible to give you that insight. And the Bible is going to tell you six things. I hate list, but I'm going to give you six things about the kingdom of God. The first aspect of the kingdom of God is the heavenly kingdom. It is the angelic order. The apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, said, in him all things are created, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, kingdoms, rulers, or authorities, the angelic realm, all things have been created through him and for him. And so you have the creation of the angelic order. And the domain is our father who art in heaven. There is a place. It is called heaven. And so uh, that was the kingdom of God. The Bible doesn't tell you a whole lot about it. The Bible can't tell humans a whole lot about certain things. And so we know that there was an eternal kingdom. As a matter of fact, whenever uh, Adam and Eve are on the scene, somebody tempts them. Satan, where did he come from? He's already there. Um, after they sin, God puts angels in front of the tree of life that they will not try to get in and live eternally in a fallen state. Where did the angels come from? They're already on the scene. You have to keep on reading to find out where they came from. And so you have the angelic order. You have the heavenlies. You have a kingdom of God. And that is why angels, when they are mentioned in the Bible, they're always doing the same thing. They are in the worship of God and they are his obedient angelos, messengers and servants. Something happened. It's mysterious. It's only alluded to about three times in the Bible. There's a lot God just can't tell us about. I had a professor who said, if God told us too much about angels or demons, we would worship them. And so he can't. As a matter of fact, you never see an angel named until the book of Daniel. And he is called Gabriel and then Michael. Because God can't tell Israel about angels until their idolatry has put them into exile. Otherwise, they would worship them, which they did worshiping the heavenly host anyway. And so something happened in the angelic realm that can never happen again. Because when it happened, there was a ceiling in an understanding of knowledge. It's like, can I put my hand on a red hot burner? Uh, no, theoretically I can, but my knowledge of what that burner will do is sealed in my memory. 
And so my will is such that I will never touch it again. Prior to the angelic rebellion, there could have always been a discussion. What would happen if somebody tried to take charge and became an adversary to God? The word adversary in Hebrew, we pronounce it Satan. And so what would happen if you had an adversary? Well, there was a temptation and there was a rebellion. First Timothy chapter three tells you not to lay hands upon a young man to be an elder, lest he fall, he become puffed up and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Pride, where did Paul get that? Probably Isaiah 14, that it speaks of, of the star of morning who says, I will be like the most high and I will raise my throne above the, the stars of God. I will be like God. And he was cast out. And so you had a rebellion and you had Satan leading out what the Bible simply calls uh, the devil and his angels. The Bible speaks of the heavenly realm of I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ and of the chosen angels. So there was an election, there was a selection, and there was a fall in the angelic realm. And you have what is called the origin of sin. That it's not an, evil is not an eternal counterpart to God. It has an origin and an act of rebellion. And so what do you do if you have this rebellion and they are cast from God's presence as profane? Well, most of us would simply annihilate them. Well, the problem is, is that and you now have a question. Is God worthy of submission? And is God worthy to be the eternal king. That question has been brought now to the surface. And so God's worthiness is going to be demonstrated. God's worthiness is going to be exonerated. His worthiness is going to be vindicated. We're going to make it open. As a matter of fact, I was asked one time at seminary, what is the first chronological verse in your Bible? If you went back chronologically, as far as you could go, what would be the first one? And it's Ephesians 3, 10 and 11. It says that the, the church is going to be a, uh, uh, a witness to the unfathomable um, wisdom of, and grace of God. And Paul said, this was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, that the angelic realm can look into things that angels long to look and they can see the glory, the majesty, the holiness, the wrath, the mercy of God. And so the apostle Paul said that he and the apostles were um, spectacles, uh, to the world, both to angels and to men. It's in Corinthians. The word spectacle is our Greek word. We get the word theater, that the angelic realm can look and they can observe the glory of God. So ponder on that for a couple of years. Okay. And so you have here the rebellion and the glory of God has been brought into question. So what do we have now? We have our second point. We have the creation. You have Genesis chapter one and following. And again, Satan is there. The angelic, the cherubim are there. Where they came from, you gotta keep on reading. 
And so you have the heavens and the earth, and you have what is called by the Puritans a vice regent, a ruler in the place of God, that he rules underneath God and for God. When I consider the heavens and the works of thy hands, what is man that thou art concerned with him? Are the son of man that thou dost take note of him? But you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put all things in subjection under his feet and given him his head over everything that moves or swims in the seas. Man is now the vice regent, the vicar, the vicarious one. He rules in the stead of God. He is to subdue. He is to um, cultivate. He is to bring forth and multiply. He is to eat of the tree of, of life. And there is to be now a kingdom of God in the face of the rebellion of the angelic order. So again, God's worthiness at every point of scripture has to be exonerated that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made seen through the church to the rulers and the authorities. It has to be vindicated. And so here comes Genesis 3, a temptation. And y'all know what happens. Here's the fall. And as a result, you have what Revelation 22 calls the curse went out. And you have the mess that you see on CNN. Okay. You got the mess that has accompanied human history where Adam, the created son of God, the book of Luke calls Adam the son of God by creation. He was looked to God as his father and to where the son of God, Adam, now becomes a child of wrath. John said, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Can that happen? It did. Man now became complicit with evil. And he became now instinctively hostile to the greatness of God. Man, the king of the earth, became now man, the servant of Satan and the slave of sin. And the entire realm was cursed. There are thorns and thistles that are waiting for someone to wear a crown of thorns and to suffer for what man did. Are you with me so far? You've got the kingdom of the heavens. You had a fall. You have the kingdom on earth. And again, you have seen the tragedy of the fall. Third point, upon man's rebellion, as soon as he sins, hope is given. God will not let man think for a minute, not for a second, that he will on his own remedy CNN. I just made that up right there. I'm not going to let you for one second think that your science, your education, your sociology, your philosophy, your hedonism, the arts, I'm not going to let you think that you can fix this thing. As soon as sin occurs in Genesis 3.14 and Genesis 3.15, literally one breath, you have time for one breath, that's all. The sea, I'll put enmity, Satan, between your seed and the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head, and you will wound his heel. God, the very Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of heaven, he is going to enter into humanity. 
He's going to become one of us. Y'all believe that? That's beyond us. God will become a human and enter into humanity. And he will, like David to Goliath, he will go at Satan, mano imano, man to man. Winner takes all. Winner takes all. And Satan will wound his heel. He will bite him and he will kill him. And in so doing, that man will conquer sin, Satan, and death. You're telling me that God, through death, will eliminate sin and death. Yes, that's impossible. You gotta keep on reading, see how it occurs. And so God is gonna enter, he's gonna defeat, he's gonna die, he's going to defeat Satan, he's going to die, and he is going to reestablish the kingdom of God. We're going to have a cosmic reunion between God and his creation someday because of what he's gonna do. And as the Old Testament continues from Genesis 3, 15 and following, you see a people that are promised that they will be the one through whom he will come. The most oft prophesied event in all of the Bible is the, the uh, identity of this person, the redeemer, the seed of woman that'll crush the serpent's head. You, you can miss on a lot of things, but you can't miss on who this guy is. Uh, the Bible tells you about eight things about him. He's gonna come from a certain race. He's gonna be from the sons of Shem. Genesis chapter nine, he'll be a Semite. He'll be a Jew. Salvation is from the Jew, John 4. And he's gonna come from the nation of Israel. We know that. From Abraham and your seed shall the nations be blessed. He's gonna come from the 12 tribes of Israel. He's gonna come from one tribe, the tribe of Judah. He is going to be um, set forth in a book you will be able, the Bible says, what advantage has the Jew great in every respect? First of all, that he's entrusted with the oracles of God, that God will tell you where he's coming from. And so the Bible will, will, the, will get narrower and narrower down to just one little shoot that one man can go through. He'll come from a certain city, Micah 5, 2, from Bethlehem. He will rule in a certain city, Daniel chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, from Jerusalem. And his throne will be over all of the world. Abraham, in your seed shall all the nations be blessed. We represent no telling how many of the nations right here. And yet we all have one thing in common. We are all hopelessly devoted to one particular Jew. Amen. There is one wounded Jew that all of us happen to love. And so... Israel is going to be the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, if you take all the, the continents and push them together, you know what's dead center? It's Jerusalem. It's dead center. If I would have been God, I'd have put the elect nation in uh, the North Pole, okay, where they couldn't be infiltrated by anybody. God puts them dead center. And we're going to go out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts of the earth. And so they're going to be, Israel's going to be a kingdom in miniature with God ruling from Jerusalem by his word in his temple, overlooking the ark of his covenant of the righteousness of God between him and his word will be a mercy seat where the blood of the lamb will be applied. And that will be his throne, the throne of a wounded deity. And so that nation has a 
Christ-shaped vacuum that no one else can fill. And they're always looking for the time to be fulfilled and the kingdom of God to be at hand for that man to come. Where is he who was born? The king of the Jews. We saw his sign in the east and we have come to worship him. And so uh, that nation of Israel is going to be what James calls first fruits to God. They are going to be, James said, the first fruits among God's creatures. We're going to go to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. The world is going to have an enunciation to it and it's going to come through the Jew. Are you with me so far? So you've got the heavenly kingdom, the fall, the earthly kingdom, the fall, and now a promise of a king. Well, the fourth point is the king came. As you continue in the Old Testament, the time is fulfilled. The king is at hand. He's here. The Old Testament says, where is the lamb? John the Baptist said, behold the lamb. Book of Revelation, worship the lamb. He's here. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Paul said that he is the testimony born at the proper time. He came exactly when God wanted him to come. Now, to the Jew, when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how did a Jew understand prophetically what that statement meant? He had a very clear understanding of it. To the Jew, it meant the personal reign of the Christ uh, over an obedient and reborn nation of Israel, that they would have been repentant, sin would have been removed, and they would have now indulged themselves, the book of Jeremiah says, in the new covenant. They would have been free from law given to children into the sonship of the rebirth. And they would not teach every man his brother saying, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least to the greatest. And their sin I will remember no more. And I'll put my law into their hearts. It will be a nation that is washed by clear water and born of the Holy Spirit. And so it will be an obedient nation of Israel who is going through the Messiah to reign there that the glory of God will be among them. They will bring peace and blessing to all of the earth. Men will beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, and they will study war no more. This is the Abrahamic covenant. In your seed, singular, shall the nations be blessed. So to a Jew, the kingdom of God was not merely a spiritual thing of reunion with God. It was a literal, historic fulfillment of literal, historic promises that the king had come and the nation had embraced him. Well, this was what Jesus called the nation to. Verse 15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The nation had Messiah come to them at their lowest point. They have been ruled by Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now they are ruled by Herod. Do y'all know who Herod is? He's an Edomite. He's a descendant of Esau. 
He's a mad king that has been delegated power by Caesar. And so Israel is now paying rent on their own land. They're as low as you can get. Uh, 10 twelfths of the nation are gone into captivity. The others have gone, Judea and Benjamin have gone into Babylon. They're brought back just a remnant and they literally have to pay Caesar to live on their own land. It's as bad as you can get. They have replaced salvation by faith in God with obedience to Jewish law. And they have the oral tradition called the Mishnah. They have written it into a document, about 26 English volumes called the Talmud of what it takes to obey every single law where you can know that you have eternal life by works. And so they have gotten into error. Um, they have a leadership class that has dominated the poor and it's a bad deal. Repent because the king is at hand. In verse 15, believe this God spell, this heavenly message that has been brought to you by God himself. And he would do miracles. He would say things. He would um, change the lives of people that there was no doubt that this is him. Uh, he came to the leaders. You remember he would do a miracle and he would say, go show yourself to the priest because I want the leaders to know that I have done this. Uh, they plotted together. And they said, this man has to die. You remember when you had the, the brothers of Joseph that were bad guys and you had one good guy, Joseph, who was sent by Jacob to check on his brothers and he brought back a bad report. The brothers were to repent to their father and they didn't. They said, here comes this dreamer who has said he's going to rule us someday. Let's kill him and see what will become of his words and prophecies. And they sent him to his death. They thought he was dead, but he was alive from the dead, ruling over the Gentiles. And someday he would bring that nation under his feet and be a blessing. That's what happened to Christ. You had a nation that had gone rogue. And here came a younger son calling them to repentance. And they said, no, rather we'll kill you and we'll take what is yours. And so the nation's leaders rejected him. And then once the nation looked at him, they saw that he was not the king that they wanted. Pontius Pilate beat him beyond recognition, put a crown of thorns on his head, beat it into his brow, stood back and said, behold the man, behold your king. Shall I crucify your king? What'd they say? We have no king but Caesar. And he did. And so the leaders and the nation crucified him. There was an occasion in the Old Testament that you had a judge that was a perfect judge. He never lost a battle. He ruled Israel. He brought them from the outhouse to the penthouse. He brought them to be conquerors of the Philistines. His name is Samuel. And the nation said, we don't want you anymore. And God said, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. You know why they got rid of him? Samuel was too preachy. They wanted a military leader to bring blessing without repentance. Can nations ever do that? 
I want to be fixed and I want to be prosperous, but don't talk to me about God. Can't imagine that ever happening again. And so they rejected, we don't like your preachiness. Well, that's what they did to Joseph. That's what they did to uh, Samuel. In a sense, it's what they did to Daniel. I'm sorry, to David. And it's what they did to Christ. You're just too darn religious. You keep rubbing the fur the wrong way. Turn the cat around. We don't like your preaching. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us pleasant words. Here he is, a bloody mess. We're done. And so he was not the Messiah Israel wanted. It would be like if we had a president that said, I'm going to call for all the House and Senate to get on your face right now, and we're going to worship the God of heaven and repent of our sodomy, abortion, and our rejection of God. I'd vote for him. How long do you think he'd last? No time. We want happiness. We want Eden, but we don't want God. And so we're no different than anybody else. And that's what Israel did. And so the kingdom, this is our fourth point. The king came, point three, and the king was rejected. The kingdom was, I had a professor at seminary, said the way that you remember the ministry of Christ is O-R-P-A or PA. The kingdom was offered. It was rejected. Now it is postponed. And someday it will appear, O-R-P-A. Well, let's take a look. What is the next point? Is the kingdom has been rejected by Israel. It is now postponed. The kingdom is out there, but it's in what is called a mystery that the Old Testament didn't develop. You have to get to the New Testament to understand it. The Old Testament sees, I've shown you this before, a mountaintop with a cross of Messiah coming and dying. And then you see a mountaintop with Messiah reigning in glory. They look like they're two mountaintops right next to each other. But as you get up on top of them, you find out that there's a great distance between them and you can't tell it till you're there. And then you see that he will die, that there is a valley in between that is called the church. That the Old Testament, the word church isn't in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. You have to get up to it. And then you see, ah, he's going to gather out a people. Then he's going to return and establish the kingdom. So the kingdom is rejected and it's now in a mystery form that the Old Testament didn't uh, delineate. And so let me just show you some. If you'll look at Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, the kingdom has been rejected. And Jesus says to them in verse 41, what is God going to do? Matthew 21, verse 41, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That's 70 AD that happened to Jerusalem. And then he will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds. I'm going to give the privilege of being my people, the vineyard. I'm going to give it to somebody else that will be obedient to me. And in verse 42, he says, this is nothing new. It's prophesied. 
I'm telling you yesterday's news. Did you never read in the scriptures? And he quotes here from Psalm 118. The stone, that's Messiah, that the builders, that's the leaders of Israel, rejected, that's the cross. This became the chief cornerstone. That cross became the foundation of a whole new institution. What's the institution? I'll give you a hint. You're looking at it right now. Y'all see that? That is the substructure of this place, that Bible, and the substructure of what is called the Christian church. That which the builders rejected has become the corner. How many of you men or women have a crucifix around your neck or you have got a cross on your earlobes or you've got it somewhere because this instrument of execution, torture, and death has become the foundation of our hope. Amen? Amazing. That's how you know Christianity is of God. No human could have figured this out. Who were the people most opposed to Christianity? Answer, Christians. Because we couldn't figure this out. And so it says, this came about from the Lord. Can God use evil things to bring about his ultimate good purposes? Yes. yes, this came about from the Lord. And it is the word marvelous in Greek has the idea of miraculous. This is miraculous in our eyes. In verse 43, therefore, I say to you, the Jews, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. You're fired. You're done. You've heard me say before that in Texas, you have blue chip athletes, and then you have count chip athletes. The blue chips are the guys that everybody wants. The cow chips, <laughs> all right, they're the guys that walk on at Navarro Junior College. All right, so. Uh, what happens if you're a coach of a team and you've got a blue chip athlete who gets all full of himself and he doesn't think he has to submit and he rebels and starts to break up the team? You sit him down. You put him on the bench. You know who you put in his place? Cow chip. Because the cow chip knows he ain't no good. And he'll listen to everything the coach says. And the cowship will vindicate the glory of the coach. What nation was the blue chip nation? Israel. They didn't want to submit. The kingdom of heaven is taken away from you. I'm going to take away your king. I'm going to take away the promise of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to take away the new covenant of rebirth from you. I'm going to take away your identity to be priest in a holy nation. I'm taking it from you. I'm going to take away your enlightenment to the Bible. I'm going to take away the unity that you have. And I'm going to take away your purpose to proclaim to the nations that the king has come. Israel, sit down. Sit down. Who are you going to put in their place? I'm going to put the stupidest human beings I can find. I'm going to take this Babylonian, this Ethiopian eunuch. I'm going to take Cornelius, this Roman centurion. 
I'm going to take this African, this Chinese, this guy from College Station. I'm going to take, I'm going to take them from Alaska. I'm going to take from every tribe and tongue. And they're not going to have to simply return to God. They're going to have to abandon everything they've ever thought about God. And I'm going to introduce them to a Jewish king. And I'm going to make them my Ruth, my people. Who are we talking about? That's you. That's us. The church. The ek kaleo. The called out. I'm going to summon you. You and I as Gentiles don't trace ourselves back to the womb of Sarah. We trace ourselves back uh, to the Tower of Babel. I'm going to take you out of confusion. And I'm going to introduce you to God. And I'm going to show the angelic realm what I can do. And so now we have a kingdom of God. Question, is it the kingdom of God in its full prophesied expression? No. We're a mystery. That's why one time I was in, uh, I was in Jerusalem. And we were having a Denton Bible trip. And there was a Chicago Jew who was an unbeliever who had a little place he was selling stuff there in the city. And we all came and our tour guide wanted us to see an unbelieving Jew as part of the tour. And he got up and started talking to us and he said something so interesting. He said, look, I don't believe that Jesus is the king because in my Bible, the king is going to bring a kingdom. The heavens will, or the mountains will drip with sweet wine and men will bleat their swords and plowshares and the lion will lay down with the lamb. And then he said, if he's the king, where's the kingdom? And uh, I being the patient, holy man that I am, <laughs> held my tongue. But what I wanted to say to him was, there's a guy named Matthew, a Jew that wrote to you the kingdom was offered. Where's the kingdom? You killed him. Where's it now? It's postponed. How do we, what do you mean? It's given to the idiot standing around you. It's given to us. We know him. And so that is where the kingdom is now. You ready? I'm going to give you a, a term that you always want to remember it. Repeat after me. Already, but not yet. Hey, Doug, you're not dead. I'm so glad to see you. Okay. The kingdom is already come, but not yet in its full expression. Are you with me? Because if you're not, I can't go on any farther. You got to get that point. And because that's the problem the Jew has with Christianity. If he's the king, where's the kingdom? You can't see it. What? It's in a mystery form. What? Where's that? You got to get up on it to look down and then you can see it. And so the kingdom has already come, but it's not yet in its full form. It's spiritual. You and I have been given their king. Amen. We got their king and we got the gift of the Holy Spirit. We got the new covenant. God has jiggled our will that we don't have to be under law, we can be under grace. He has forced us 
to love him by conversion. We are, we have an identity. We're a royal priesthood. We are enlightened. The Bible says of the Jew, God love them. It says, until this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lines over their heart. They can't figure it out. Uh, you and I can open Leviticus and we can see it. We can go to Numbers. We can see it. Our eyes are open. We also have their unity. That ideally you can walk in a church. Dr. Pentecost at seminary used to say that the church is a snapshot of the kingdom. That you can walk in and you can see this guy and this guy, these different sort of peoples, and they're all praying together. There's no seating chart. There's no men and women, young and old, good guys, you know, bad guys, converted when they were six months old, converted when they were dug, you know. You don't have this seating chart. They all love each other. And they, their hands are on their wallets. They're looking out for each other if it's done right. And that's what the church now looks like. And so we, and we have their purpose. We get to be his witnesses. We get to tell people that he's come. So the kingdom has been taken away from you. We are the kingdom of God. Let me stop there. Somebody says, yeah, but we can't be the final form because the Bible says we're not just a spiritual kingdom. It says there is the Messiah in Jerusalem over a reborn nation bringing peace to all the world. Yes, it does. And that's your sixth point. Is that we are yet waiting for that literal, historic Israeli kingdom. If you look at your New Testament from Romans to the book of Jude, it explains the death of Christ and the church. But it end, doesn't end with the book of Jude we would have a problem. You see why it's so important that you've got a book 66 that is called The Revealing? It's, the book of Revelation is not just prophecy. It's time travel. John is there. He's watching it happen. And he comes back from the future to say, this is going to happen. And so we see that there is going to be the taking away of the church, a time of the day of the Lord of tribulation, bringing the earth to its knees, and then he returns to a repentant nation, Israel, and thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the second coming will fully establish the kingdom of God when, and I quote, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah. And that is why, when you look at the Old Testament, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, you can't quite figure them out until God opens your eyes and you see, now I see who it is. That's who it is. Let me show you something fascinating. Look at Luke 24. So do you understand a little bit more about what Christ meant when he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He meant, I'm the king. Y'all have messed it up. Repent. Now, the question has always been, and there'll always be a guy in a seminary class asked this question. 
Could Israel have accepted Christ? It was, yes, sir, it was a valid offer and a valid rejection. But could Christ have been king without a cross? Be careful, because it's a very valid point. If it was a valid offer and a valid rejection, and if God was in validity angry with them and judged them by the killer D's, they were uh, deported and Jerusalem was desolate and the nation is now darkened. So did that happen? Yes, it did. And yet he could not have been king unless he died. You're right. Israel had to reject him. You're right. But God was still wrathful. You're right. Next question. The Bible, you got to be careful if you're going to try to make it resolve rationally. You believe its points. Uh, they said to Joseph, our daddy Jacob is dead. Are you going to now kill us in memory of what we did to you? He said, brothers, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. That evil act, God was behind this, to preserve a multitude alive. So you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So that's the answer. Did Jesus have to die? Yes. Was it a valid offer and a valid rejection? Yes. Does that make sense rationally? No. Does it historically? Yes. Let's move on to the next one. In Luke chapter 24, just, this is, just fascinates me. On the road to Emmaus, in verse 13, two are going that very day, Sunday, to a village named Emmaus. Verse 14, they're talking with each other. They're trying to figure out how this valid king could get rejected. In verse 15, while they're talking and discussing, Jesus approached, began traveling with them. 16, their eyes are prevented because we want a conversation to go on. So people in Denton, Texas could see it years later. And so in verse 17, he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And at the end of verse 17, this is how you look when you don't have divine illumination. They stood still looking sad. And that's always the way it is when you can't understand the relationship between the death of Christ and the glories to follow. In verse 18, one of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened? That's really funny because Christ is the only one that did understand what was going on. Are you the only guy here that can't figure it out? <laughs> Josh McDowell used to say, when you see Christ in heaven, he'll have the sloped forehead from going. <laughs> what, what can I say? Are you the only one here that can't figure these things out? Remember that the next time God does something that you don't like and you start whining. God, are you the only one here that can't figure it out? Verse 19, I love this. What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, a prophet, they understood that, mighty indeed, they understood that. And word, they understood that. In the sight of God and the people, they understood that. He, this was such a great guy. 
All he did was good. And yet in verse 20, the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Can life ever throw you that curve? This guy was the best we had and darned if we didn't kill him. Give me a hand. Verse 21. And we were hoping it was he that was going to redeem Israel. Question. Did they have a preconceived notion of what the redeemer would be? Yes, they did. Did it include his death on the cross? It did not. How do we know Christianity is true? Because early Christians didn't believe it. It's a gift of God. It's an act of God. He's the only one that can figure out what's happening. And so besides, it's the third day since this has happened. We can't figure out where he's been for three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning. And some women amazed us when they were at the tomb and they didn't find his body. And they said they'd seen angels and they said he was alive. We have got this contradictory information. What a good guy. What a terrible death. And yet women said that angels said that he's alive. We got these balls in the air. We got these plates spinning and they don't make sense. And these are your earliest apostles. These are your Christian elder brothers who can't figure this out. This make you feel better about yourself. They can't figure it out. It was G. Campbell Morgan that said, the mist of today are always dissipated by the bright light of God's tomorrow. Just wait. In verse 24, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb, meaning Peter and John, and found it just like these women had said. We have got this contradictory information. And Jesus said to them, idiots, <laughs> foolish men, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Your problem isn't that you didn't believe what these men and women said. Your problem is you don't understand your Bible. Was it not, what's your word, necessary? He had to die. This horrible thing that happened, it was ordained by God. What? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and enter his glory. Look at him. Y'all see this? Suffer glory. Does he see the two mountaintops? Yes. Christ knows exactly how they fit. Joseph rejected, Joseph ruling. He understands when it's all said and done exactly how it fits. You just can't see it. In verse 27, then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning him and all the scriptures. He said, boys, my death, resurrection, salvation, return, and rule. It's from Genesis to Malachi. Wouldn't you have loved to have been on the road that day? They're going to say in a few verses later, did not our hearts burn when he opened the scriptures? They were just talking. Did you feel the light come on? I did. In verse 28, they approached the village as though they were going further and acted as he acted as though he were going farther. He won't go in unless you ask him. You dig? He's a gentleman. 
He'll stand at the door and knock. You open the door, he'll come in. But he's not going to kick the door in. I'm going to bring you to that point. And in verse 29, they urged him and said, stay with us. It is growing toward evening. Y'all ever sing the hymn, abide with me, soft falls the eventide. Lord, with us abide. That's where it comes from. Stay with us. The day is nearly over and he went in to stay. You ask him and he will give you light. I've got a good buddy that came to Christ over the last few years and he was a passionate atheist. And he and I, I said, are you willing to pray that God will show himself to you any way that he wants to? Are you willing to pray that with me? He said, I will. And he did. Now he is an elder in the Lutheran church. And God did. I won't tell you how he did, but he did. He showed himself. And so they reclined at table and he took the bread and blessed it and began giving it to him and their eyes were opened. All of a sudden it clicked. Where have I seen this before? Deja vu. I remember the last supper. He broke the bread. This is my body. Hey. And verse 31, their eyes were opened. They recognized him and he vanished. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning when he was speaking to us on the road, explaining the scriptures? And they went in, verse 34, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. All of a sudden it clicked. He had to die. And so that is the kingdom of God. Question, does this relate to our day? Is there a lot of craziness going on out there? You feel sometimes like you're in a commode and the entire world is swirling around you going down. You ever feel, you'll never forget that illustration. Right? Dig it now. We are God's kingdom. Number two, we have our king. They've got their king. We got our king. We've got a wounded king and he is on his throne. Number three, our king rules by his word. They've got their rules. We got our rules. They're crazy. You know what God would say? When have they not been? When has there been a time in human history they weren't crazy? The only reason they haven't been crazy is because of our presence. They've always been nuts. If you go outside our borders, they're more nuts than they are nuts here. So what's new? That's why it's called Babylon, confusion. They're never going to get normal. They're never going to embrace the truth. Neither would we if God hadn't have assaulted us and brought us to himself. Fourthly, we have our purpose, and our purpose is to herald the coming of the king. How bad can it get? Who cares? We know who we are. We know who he is. We know why we're here, and so we're going to preach. And lastly, we have something they don't have. It's called hope. He's coming back. 
I read the end. I read ahead. He's coming back. So keep on keeping on. Father in heaven, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, we see that 96 times in our Bible. It's coming. It's already come. It was promised to come. Your kingdom was rejected by Satan. It was rejected by Adam. It was rejected by Israel. It will be rejected by this world. It is embraced by us. That you, ecclesia, you, iglesia, you called us out. You spoke our voice. The sheep hear my voice. Another, they will not follow. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because this is the will of the Father. That all that he has given to me will come to me. And the one who comes, I will not cast out. And I will raise him on the last day. So from the Alpha to the Omega. From the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea to the final resurrection. To the rapture of the church, you are in control and not one of your sheep will perish. And you have gifted us for a job. And Lord, we are in a country that has gone mad. And it has rejected the one that brought us here. And that's okay. Because uh, you give no promises to the United States. Only to the people that dwell within that are called by your name. And so find us, God. As in the apostles of old, find us faithful. And as we continue on in Mark, in this Galilean ministry, and begin to watch your shaping of a new community, illumine us, we'll ask in Christ's name.